So many thanks to all that participated in the in the music this morning that led us in the music and the hymns and in the choruses. We thank the Lord and praise the Lord for the word found in these pieces of music that we sing. <clears throat> Just a couple of things to reiterate um, or to mention to you. We had a great time Friday night, uh, the youth and a number of uh, their friends and so forth went to uh, watch a hockey game at Liberty, and um, we thoroughly enjoyed it. My thanks to Rachel for getting the, uh, uh, the box for us. That was enjoyable. And then to Afton for the food. Thank you all so much. We had a great time. Uh, we were, uh, had tickets for 20, and we had 20, so that's good. And Liberty won in overtime, so that's also a good thing, too. Um, we started First Peter almost a year ago now. As a matter of fact, next Sunday it will mark a year anniversary. And uh, if you're keeping tabs of such things, this is the 34th message because we've taken took quite a bit of time over Christmas to look at uh, the uh, nature of the cradle and the cross. And so we're back this morning in First uh, Peter chapter two. So if you are Joining with us this morning via the internet, we do welcome you. And with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have few Bibles. And you need to follow along because that's important. The Spirit of God uses that to speak to your heart. Jesus himself said to he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And so that's the reason that we uh, break forth the Word of God. We have a number of guests. Thank you so much for joining with us. We preach and teach expositionally at Flat Creek, which generally means we select a book under the guidance of the Spirit of God, and we preach all the way through it. We finished the book of Romans about 18 months ago, and as I said, we started uh, 1 Peter about a, a year ago. Now, I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 2, and I'm going to read through verse 20 of chapter 2. And basically what we're going to do this morning is review because it's been over 90 days since we've preached any messages from Peter's great pastoral epistle. I'm reading from the New King James, the Pew Bibles are the ESV version. Peter wrote, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims that abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. Fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And we'll stop there. He goes into the understanding of why we uh, are to suffer this way because of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll stop with verse 20 this morning. We're going to start to look at, over these next couple of weeks or so, holding to authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. This morning for your word, we thank you for your son, we thank you for your spirit, and we thank you for your people. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins. We pray, Father, that where we are ignorant, that you would, Father, increase our understanding and knowledge, our wisdom. And Father, where we are not like Christ, and each and every one of us here this morning is not like you, we pray that you would make us like our elder brother Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, brother, first slide. <clears throat> so, as I said, we've been about a year or so um, off and on in the book of First Peter, and the goal is to preach through First Peter and then into Second Peter as well. So this is what we've covered to date in chapter 1. Uh, the first 12 verses, we looked at the hope and the gospel. None of us are saved without the gospel, and so there is hope that is found in the gospel. Then Peter moves into describing the hope in the form of holiness. We are called to be a holy people. And from verse 13 of chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter uh, 2, he has talked about Holiness, that we are required to be holiness, holy. In fact, we read this morning that we are commanded because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And then a few weeks ago, we concluded the passage from verse 4 through verse 12 on honoring the cornerstone. And there's quite a bit of quoting here from the Old Testament. And Peter, as well as Paul and the other authors of the New Testament, 
quoted the Old, Old Testament in order that we understand that the Old Testament is every bit as pertinent to our reading of the Word of God as the New Testament. In fact, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ that we see in these verses that we've read in your hearing. So we, are, we have arrived at verse 13. And this entire passage from verse 13 through verse 7 of chapter 3 is entitled Holding to Authority. And so what Peter is doing is, if you look at verse 13, he says, therefore, submit. So this entire passage is on submission. And he is talking to believers, and we'll broach this in just a moment, that have been scattered abroad the Roman Empire. So verses 13 through 17, he talks about submitting to the government for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, and he'll talk about it, he did not revile when he was reviled, but rather he took the punishment that was not his in order that we might be redeemed. So verses 13 through 17, picking up in verse 18, if we go from verse 18 through verse 25, we're to submit to the suffering because the Lord Jesus submitted to suffering. And then in the first seven verses of chapter 3, we are to submit in the family. He talks about the relationship of husbands and wives and also of children in those first seven verses of chapter 3. So we are, this is one of the longest passages in 1 Peter. And Peter does a great job of covering all of these, uh, uh, all of these uh, bullet points, if you will, teaching us how we are to submit. So Peter is the writer. Who and where? What's the author and the date? And again, there is little reason. There are those knuckleheads that don't think Peter wrote First and Second Peter. But in the overwhelming majority of church history believes Peter wrote First and Second Peter. And there's little reason not to think that he is the author. He used uh, um, uh, an amanuensis by the name of Silas. This is the man that traveled with Paul early in his uh, missionary journey. Turn to chapter 5. <coughs> Peter is closing, First Peter, this epistle. And so in verse 12, he says, By Silvanus... Our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So he used a secretary, if you please, as the Spirit of God moved in his heart and his life. This is not dictation. This is the Spirit of God using the personality of Peter to convey to those that were scattered abroad in Rome the truths that the Spirit of God wanted him to expound on. Same thing with Paul, same thing with the other authors of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, he writes to, we read this back in chapter 1, so turn with me back to chapter 1. He says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, or Bithynia. So a scattered group of 
Christian believers. They did not have the privilege of coming together in the house of God that you and I have enjoyed. For me, I've enjoyed it uh, all of my life since my parents knew the Lord as Savior. They were fearful, and we're going to see why they were fearful. We think that this uh, particular epistle was written toward the end of Peter's life. Now, we don't find this in the epistle, but we know that Peter's wife was with him because the Roman records indicate that his wife was beheaded on the same day that Peter was crucified. And because of that, he witnessed that execution. So when we get to chapter 3, we'll be able to look at the some of the uh, endearment that Peter writes, and I'm sure he's writing about uh, the love that he has for his wife. Now, this group of individuals that he mentions here, in verse 1, had suffered local persecution, not only in Rome, but in these areas that he has, uh, that he has identified in chapter 1. We know that he wrote the epistle from Rome. He was imprisoned in Rome. And we know that because, again, chapter 5 and verse 13, he uses a, uh, um, a euphemism, if you please, to identify the, uh, the city of Rome. And he says in verse 13, she who is in Babylon. It's a good name for Rome. Good name for a lot of the cities of the United States. Good name for the majority of cities in the world. Babylon. And if you know anything about the Word of God, if you refer to Babylon, you are referring to a uh, wicked, vile, uh, despicable city and nation. And Rome was. He wrote it after Nero, one of the Caesars, allegedly set fire to Rome, and he blamed, he had to find someone to blame, so he blamed the followers of Christos Curios, or the fact that Christ is Lord and not Caesar. Little known fact, Nero became Caesar at 17 years of age. He committed suicide at 31. So essentially, he was only Caesar for about 14 years, but he, he did a world of damage in 14 years, especially to the believers, to Christians. Next slide, if you would, brother. Rome was, uh, talk a little bit about the fire here. It was a city of narrow streets that was populated with slums. Now there, Robbie and I have been to Rome. It's, a, it's an amazing city. Uh, and what remains there in Rome is essentially uh, all of the, uh, uh, many of the palaces and some of the temples, the pagan temples and so forth that were there. And obviously the uh, uh, Basilica of St. Uh, Peter that's there in, uh, in the Vatican. But all of the slums are gone, or at least these types of slums, they were gone. And so they lived in these wooden tenements. Uh, the first, there were a series of fires. And the first one lasted three days and destroyed most of the homes. Now the Romans themselves, even though Nero blamed the Christians, the Romans believed that Nero set fires, and it's possible that he did. He had this 
avocation to be the greatest builder in the history of uh, Rome at that time. And so history records he um, watched from uh, the corner tower of the Temple of Luna, Temple of the Moon, uh, and he watched the Ara Maxima, which is the great altar in the Temple of Luna. He watched the Temple of Jupiter Stator, which is the supreme god, or was the supreme god of the Romans. The Shrine of Vesta, all these, Temple of Luna, Temple of uh, Jupiter, were, uh, were servant, they, ser- they were served by Vestal virgins, and that's the Shrine of Vesta, one of the uh, female goddesses in their pagan <coughs> panorama. He saw all of this and watched it all burn, and what happened was the religious life of pagan Rome was consumed. Even the household gods of the people of Rome were burned. Most of them were wood anyway. They were homeless, they lost faith in their gods, and they were bitter, and Nero needed a scapegoat. And so he had to redirect the hostility, and he, so he blamed Christians, and these are some reasons that he blamed them. And of course, being Caesar, no one dared voice their opinion against the Caesar. Uh, I'll give you six of these rapidly. They were already hated uh, and slandered. And one of the reasons was Claudius, who was the Caesar before Nero, there was such a hatred of the Jews. We talk about anti-Semitism. There was such a hatred of the Jews in Rome that Claudius expelled most of the Jews from the city of Rome before Nero became Caesar. Among these are a husband and wife group, Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla is mentioned to us in Romans chapter 16 and other places in the book of Acts as well. And so Paul met them in Corinth. They were from Rome, but they had traveled to Corinth and they began a lifelong relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. Next slide, if you would. The second reason that Nero or the Romans hated the Christians is they didn't involve themselves in emperor worship. Now, the highest form of pagan worship in Rome was the worship of the Caesar. We're studying Exodus on Sunday evening. The highest form of pagan worship in Egypt was the worship of the Pharaoh. <laughs> Everyone desires to be worshipped like God. And so before Jesus himself being the foundation of the Christian faith, before he was violently executed and resurrected, this is the method of worship around most of the world and today in some of the world uh, as well. The third reason uh, Christians separate, uh, rather celebrated the Lord's Supper, what we refer to as communion. Uh, and it was closed. If you were not a believer, in fact, you were not a baptized believer, you could not partake of the Lord's Supper. We still uh, follow that here at Flat Creek. The Christians were accused of eating flesh and drinking blood. This is taken from Luke chapter 22, and where our Lord himself said, when you take participate of me and you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood. Now, that's not to be taken literally. We know that. But these folks didn't. And so stories also circulated that uh, the Christians ate babies, 
And if you go back before even Claudius as Caesar, there were those that thought that they had uh, festivals where they would select uh, a particularly robust, we would use the word fat, a particularly fat Gentile, and they would feed him, uh, overfeed him, uh, and bring all sorts of food to him because he doesn't know what's going to happen is that, that they would then chain him and execute him. Now, that never happened, but that was one of the rumors. The fourth thing, if you look at chapter 5 and verse 14, we looked at verses 12 and 13, so look at verse 14. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And Paul would write this. We see this a number of times in the New Testament. So the pagans spread the word that there were unbridled orgies of lust and vice. They included homosexuality uh, with men embracing men with a kiss of love. And we see this, we find this in Paul's writing in chapter 1. So they hated them for that reason. Again, this is conjecture. No facts, just conjecture. Number five. If you go to Romans 16, we already talked about Aquila and Priscilla, but many of the wives of the prominent Romans came to Christ, came to faith in Christ. They rejected the pagan pantheon of the Romans. We would do well to learn that today. Christians are not to hold on to some superstition. We're to place our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So we're to push these aside and because there were many of the, of the wives that uh, embraced uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, their children became Christian. And so the worship of household gods and commerce associated with them suffered. Americans are not the first ones that have loved money. Every culture has loved money. And this was found in, um, in Rome. The book of Acts talks about it a couple of times. And the sixth thing, the sixth reason that uh, the Christians were hated is that in chapter 4 and also in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Christians preached about a day when the world would dissolve into flames. In fact, in verse 12, it says of chapter 4, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. So this was preached. And if you go to 2 Peter, he mentions something similar again in chapter 3. And in verse 7, he says there, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So this is yet to happen. But the Romans didn't know that. And because those that survived the fires in Rome, the great fires of Rome, they considered the problem to be Christians. Hey, they're going about preaching that on the last days the, uh, the Lord is going to descend with, uh, from heaven with a shout with the archangel, and those that are unbelievers will be consumed by his fire. Peter talks about it here. Paul also talked about it in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So these are some of the five, uh, six reasons rather, that 
the believers were expelled from Rome. The Jews went first, and then Christian believers, many of them, were expelled about the time that Paul and Peter, and they were imprisoned in Rome uh, approximately the same time, were there in Rome. Next slide, if you would. So Nero ingeniously indicted the Christians as the perpetrators. He and Rome were consumed with pagan fanaticism. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. It should. So why did Peter write? Well, he wrote the epistle to highlight the sufferings of our Savior on the cross. We just finished preaching a series of messages on the suffering of our Savior that brings about forgiveness. We talked about four specific words. There is no forgiveness of sins without the propitiation of God's wrath. There is no redemption No forgiveness of sins without redemption found in Jesus Christ. There's no forgiveness of sins without the justification found in Jesus Christ. And then last Sunday we closed out with there is no forgiveness of sins without reconciliation. So Peter, and we find this, uh, we just read a number of of the passages. Uh, Peter wrote to exalt the man on the center, center cross. Jesus the Christ. And the examples of his suffering are many. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. It goes on into 2 Peter. And so Peter was an eyewitness to the betrayal of his Lord. And he left when Jesus was uh, there being uh, adjudicated. He denied the Lord, we're told, before the cock crew. And then as To our knowledge, he perhaps watched the crucifixion of Jesus across the Kidron Valley up on Gordon's Calvary. So although he vehemently denied that he knew the Lord, there's no doubt that he certainly watched the crucifixion of his blessed Savior. So he writes about that. Persecution was not... It's not unusual for the Romans, not unusual for any ancient culture, still not unusual in our world today. We are, in some ways, we are removed from it because we are Americans, but if you were to go to, to China or you were to go to many of the Middle Eastern countries, uh, or you were to go to places in India or to Mongolia or other places, you would find that there is still much persecution going on. It is estimated that in the 20th century alone, 50 million Christians were murdered. So remember that. He talks about this, uh, these uh, countries. It's an area of about 750,000 square miles, or if you were to cut, almost cut our country in half, uh, an area from Texas to California. So a fairly large group that he is writing to. We are told in the book of Acts that uh, Paul wanted to go to Asia, and the Spirit of God. In Acts 16, it says, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, 
they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. I would remind you again, I've done this numbers of times, God controls the gospel. And there is no stronger verse for us to lean on than these found here in the book of Acts. He was forbidden to go to Asia. That has to do with the providence of God. I don't understand it, and you don't either. But we are recipients of Paul going into Europe rather than going into Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So remember that. Both Peter and Paul journeyed to the west, to Rome, and you and I are, those of us that are born-again believers, are the result of those missionary journeys today. Thank God for that. Peter calls these believers. He calls them pilgrims. He calls them aliens. And he calls them strangers. That's who we are. Born-again believers are pilgrims. They are aliens. We are scattered abroad. We'll talk more about that as we move through uh, verses 13 through 17 of First uh, Peter. What's the purpose of the epistle? One of the purposes is to remind us of the suffering of our Lord. It's also to teach believers how to live victoriously in the midst of hostility without losing heart, without wavering in our faith, without throwing up our hands and saying, why God, why me? Or becoming bitter. We are the purpose is to help us realize that our hope is in our Savior. And then he talks a number of times here also to remind us that we are to always look for Christ's second coming. Always. And so we praise, <coughs> praise the Lord for these <coughs> admonitions. Now the other thing too, one of the other purposes is Peter does not want his audience to become like the pagans. He doesn't want them. The pagans had lost hope in their uh, pagan gods. They lost hope because the, their gods did not bail them out of the great fire. And so Peter is writing to these believers so that they understand that we're believers. We are to take up our cross. That's what Jesus said and to follow him, and when we do, we're going to suffer. So he wants them to have no Christian despondency. He wants them to lean on the glory of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, in the latter part of chapter 12, excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 2, he says that they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of his visitation. That's the purpose. Our hope is living. We looked at that when we first started through uh, chapter 1. 
And the hope is living because it's through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through anything that we have done. It is not through anything that we might do or could do. It is only the work of Jesus Christ, God in Christ, who raised him from the dead. And I would remind you again, Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. Now, there's one more thing as we close this out this morning. Again, this is a review, but this is important. There's a structure here. As with all the writings of the Bible, there's a structure, and it will do you well to understand what that structure is. Peter is writing a pastoral epistle. What does that mean, preacher? It means he is writing to, in fact, he talks about it in chapter 5. He is writing to pastors, and he calls them shepherds, that have been scattered with their people. And he wants them to understand that they too, as pastors and under shepherds of the people of God, are going to suffer. In fact, in just a few short months, Peter would be crucified, crucified upside down, is what tradition said. He quotes from the Old Testament 20 times, one of the uh, more um, profuse use of the Old Testament found in the New Testament. And he quotes from the Greek version of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew version, the Septuagint. And so what we learn from this is that Peter, a dumb fisherman, was bilingual. In fact, he was probably trilingual. I'm looking about a congregation of Americans this morning. Some of you may be bilingual. Some of you may be trilingual. But just remind you, 2,000 years ago, there were people that were every bit as intelligent, probably in many cases more so than we are, that spoke numerous languages. And so Peter would have learned Aramaic. That would be his conversational language. This is the language that Jesus used. He also would learn Greek because much of the commerce was done in Palestine in Israel at that time uh, with the Greco-Roman uh, numerical system and, and financial system. And he more often than not, or uh, more readily than not, probably knew Hebrew as well. So being a dumb fisherman doesn't mean that you can't speak a number of languages. So we have here a very intelligent man, and we know that from the reading of his uh, epistles. Silas was a Roman citizen. We, he's the uh, the secretary of Peter. We find this in Acts chapter four, 15. We also know that John Mark was with him. John Mark is the same man that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And we think that there are some reflections in the Gospel of Mark uh, that lean on Peter as well. So this group, and there were probably others, this group worked together to put down in writing from the Holy Spirit these Epistles. Next slide, if you would. Now, keep this in mind. In the New Testament, there are a number of pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul wrote. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, wrote a pastoral epistle. Peter, first and second Peter. John, first through third John. Jude, again, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are pastoral epistles 
And they were written to, to edify the church. A pastoral epistle doesn't mean, biblically, it doesn't mean that a pastor is to do social work. It's not about visiting the sick. It's not about providing for the poor or counseling or caring for the needy or aiding folks with problems. How do we know that? We go back to First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. We can follow it through here in First Peter and chapter in Second Peter, and we learn that it was up to the deacons to carry out these responsibilities. That does not mean that a pastor shouldn't do social work, shouldn't be involved in missions, shouldn't visit the sick, provide for the poor. So it doesn't mean that at all. And if we make it a couple of weeks here, I will be a pastor of this church for 28 years, been involved with that a number of times, along with you. And that's good. That's what a church is to do. But from a biblical standpoint, the word pastor is Latin for shepherd. And so the pastoral ministry is the ministry of shepherding God's people. How's that done? I'm shepherding God's people this morning. It's done through the Word. Praying for you. Teaching you. Teaching me. So Peter teaches that pastoral care is found in the churches. We won't go there in 1 Peter 5. In those first four verses, he talks about the under-shepherds and how we how he is concerned about the hearts of the pastors and the shepherds. And he calls his fellow elders, Paul would refer to them as elders, to allow the gospel to shape their ministry. So that's what we see here. And Peter's already covered a great many doctrinal topics in these first two and a half chapters. He wants them to be willing. He wants them to be generous. He wants them to be eager servants. He wants them to exercise pastoral ministry among the flock, all the while looking to the return of the chief shepherd, our Savior Jesus Christ, the true senior pastor, our Lord. Finally, let's close with this. Next slide. Therefore, the goal of the pastoral ministry, pastoral care, is under God to lead God's people by the word of God's grace into eternity with the triune God. We can visit the sick. We can take care of the social needs, those that are poor and so forth. But the Bible is very clear. It's appointed unto man once to die. And we're going to die. So the primary responsibility that any pastor has is to preach and teach the Word of God. If they do that, they will not neglect God's people. He says in verses 11 through 17, he reminds us that we're to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The goal of Christian, of living Christian lives is that they are honorable, that they are responsible. And so as we look, begin to look at 
verse 13, when we hold to authority, the first thing we learn to do is to submit. Oh, we don't like that word, do we? Submit to government. And all you need to think about is Nero and Peter and Paul. Neither of them went around holding up placards. Neither of them went around organizing some nonviolent protest. But both of them went around preaching the Word of God. And for that, they were crucified. Paul was beheaded, Peter was crucified. We looked, verses 11 and 12. Peter's saying that it's essential we live our lives in such a way that our testimony becomes believable and beautiful. That's the last message that we had from 1 Peter chapter 2. We want a believable lifestyle and we want a beautiful lifestyle. It gives to individuals the transforming power of Christ and that's evidenced by what we say, yes, we, have to, we do have to evangelize with words. We do. It's what we have here, our words. We have to evangelize with words. Now, being who we are supports the use of the words. But we have to evangelize with words. We find that throughout the New Testament. Now, with these three perspectives, I'm not going to cover this morning. I'll pick those up at a, at a later date. So this is a review to where we are. And so we're in this passage, beginning in verse 13, that runs through verse 7 of chapter 3. And every one of these verses teach believers. If you're here this morning and you're born again, you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, this is for you. It teaches us how to submit to the authority of the government, whether we agree with it or not. Now, we'll talk about that we, when we went through Romans 13, we said there are times when you don't. But for most cases, you are to follow it. doesn't have to agree with it. We are to be submissive as servants for those that you work for, for those that you work with. We are to do this because Jesus himself submitted to the will of his Father. And then in chapter 3, he talks about submission as a family. This is a great, great epistle, and I'm looking forward to getting into it yet again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for who you are. We thank you that hundreds of years ago you moved in the heart and the life of Peter to scribe for us and have scribed for us his heart. He's covered a great many wonderful truths in the first one and a half chapters. And he's going to pick up again. This speaks a great deal, Father, to our sanctification. We 
preached a few weeks ago about justification, but now Peter is teaching us about being separate and living holy lives. So my prayer here this morning is, if there's any that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that perhaps through the preaching of the Word, but that the Word himself has moved to bring them to a point of sin. Peter has talked about sin a great deal. He continues to talk about that. We are sinners and always worst sinners than we can ever imagine. But Jesus is a far greater Savior than our sin. And so our prayer is that you'd move in their hearts and lives as believers, prepare us to receive the word as we continue to move through this great epistle. Our blessing this morning is asked with Riley and Jay as they have committed their lives to you. God and direct them. And Father, for what is accomplished, we'll not forget to thank you.